Thank you, musicians and singers. Take your copy of God's Word this morning and go to Daniel chapter 2. We're in our, our series of messages through the book of Daniel. And this morning we come to chapter 2 and uh, what I've entitled A Troubling Dream, part 1. We won't make it through all of this passage, but we'll get partway through today. And it is good to see you here with us. Uh, for you that are with us online, thank you for joining us. And uh, good to see you here in person. Uh, in our passage this morning, chapter 2 is a continuation of really a, a historical account in the first uh, six verses of Daniel. And you will remember from chapter 1 that uh, Daniel and his friends, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were taken captive by, by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 605 B.C. They had come against Jerusalem, laid siege to it, and uh, King Jehoiakim had, had wisely surrendered and uh, capitulated. God had told him he should through uh, the prophets because uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were a judgment against Judah for their sin. And so they surrendered, became a vassal state of the Babylonian empire. And part of Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to uh, take a group of, of young men back to Babylon with him. And they were part of the princes and nobles, part of the aristocracy, if you will, of, of Judah. Uh, take them back, put them in school for three years, and teach them uh, to serve in his administration, serve in the Babylonian government in various capacities. And so Daniel and his three friends were part of that group. Now what we discover in chapter one is that um, while they were there in their school, beginning their three years of school, Daniel had purpose in his heart that he wouldn't defile himself against God, that even though he was captive in a pagan land, he would uh, still maintain his faith in Jehovah God and serve God there, that he wouldn't defile himself with the king's meat. God worked in that process, uh, proved their faith to be true. And so God began to bless these, these young men, these four, Daniel and his three friends. And God gave them a uh, great blessing in their captivity. And we pointed out last week that God does not always deliver us from trouble. He doesn't always deliver us from the difficulties that he allows to come into our lives but he always promises to bless us in those difficulties and to walk with us through them. And so God certainly was doing that with Daniel and his friends. And in verse 17 of chapter one, listen to what it says. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. Now listen to this. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. That gift would come in handy beginning in chapter two, which we're gonna look at this morning. And we, we begin this morning's passage in verse one with a troubling dream of Nebuchadnezzar. So look at verse one of chapter two with me. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled that his sleep left him. These uh, dreams were no ordinary dream. These weren't the result of eating pepperoni pizza and going to bed. These were, uh, these were visions, if you will. This dream was given to him uh, by God, by Jehovah God. Uh, God had a message in these dreams for Nebuchadnezzar, and that's why he was troubled. And later when we get to the revealing of the dream next week, you'll have to come back to get that or read ahead at home. But uh, when we get to the revealing of the dream, you will see that God actually has a revelation that is giving through uh, this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. But in any case, Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king who did not know or recognize Jehovah God of Israel, uh, is troubled by these dreams. The things that God showed him in the dream disturbed him. He I have a sneaking suspicion that he felt like there was some message in there and that it was to him and uh, he didn't know what it was. In fact, 
uh, we know that uh, the Babylonians were superstitious anyway. And so when he would have had this dream, he would have been thinking there's something in this dream that I don't understand and I really want to know uh, what the problem is. Now the message being from God would be, uh, would be something he would not be able to understand because we know from reading the Bible that spiritual things are, are not discerned by carnal things. And so Nebuchadnezzar called the brain trust of, of Babylon together, if you will. He called in all the experts to try to figure out what this dream was. And we find that in verses two to four, look at it. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. He's covering all the bases. He said, bring them all in. Everybody who has any kind of divination power, anybody who has any ability to determine dreams, bring them in. And he wanted them to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, verse three. And the king said to them, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give you the interpretation. He brought in this crowd of various skilled uh, wise men. These, these various groups of his administration were skilled in, other, in various areas of, of uh, understanding those things that are hard to understand. Some of them would have approached these dreams with philosophy. Some of them would have approached these dreams with, uh, with magic, with some kind of sorcery or, or some way to determine the dreams, maybe some kind of habits or you know, throwing stones or, or bones or whatever they would do. Basically what Nebuchadnezzar wanted was anybody who had any skill to understand dreams, he wanted them all come in and, and put their efforts together because he felt like this dream was so important that he really wanted to know. Now, the thing that strikes me about this is the confidence of these wise men, these magicians, these astrologers. They come in and they say to the king very clearly, if you tell us a dream, we'll give you the answer. If you tell us a dream, most surely we can determine what the problem is and what the message is. And what we find here is, is a picture, as I mentioned a moment ago, of, of a carnal process trying to deal with a spiritual process. And that'll never work. Listen, even today, we know in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the apostle Paul said, but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The carnal world, the lost world has no hope of understanding spiritual things. The only thing lost men and women can understand is the fact that they're lost and that through the power of the Holy Spirit. So for Nebuchadnezzar to bring in his wise men to try to determine a message from Jehovah God, to determine a spiritual message from a dream purposely given to him was a waste of time. The world struggles today against Christianity. You know why? Because they don't understand us. They don't understand the word of God. They don't understand spiritual things because they're not discerned by flesh and they're not discerned by human wisdom. The world today thinks it's so smart. The world today and all of its science and its philosophy thinks it's so smart, but the wisdom of the ages is in the word of God. You hold in your hand all the wisdom man ever needs to know. You hold in your hand in the word of God everything we need to know about God and most importantly about ourselves. What do we need to understand about ourselves? That we are lost and undone in our sin. We need to understand that in our sin, we are in a hopeless condition. And God in his grace has revealed in his word that we can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Those things are not discernible through the flesh. Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and they just have that glazed look on their face? 
You know, you're telling them all the truth of heaven. And man, you're giving them that thing which they need more than, more than breath itself. You're lost in your sin. We all are. And Jesus died on a cross to save you. Will you trust him today and be saved? And, they, and you might as well be, be speaking to that wall back there because they don't understand a thing. Why is that? Because you can't discern spiritual things with the flesh. It's foolishness. It's spiritually discerned. And listen, when you and I got saved, if you're saved this morning, when you came to know Jesus Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit removed the blinders. He opened your eyes and your heart to see, and he convicted you and me about our sin. That's how we got saved. So what I'm saying here is Nebuchadnezzar's wasting his time. And these wise men, their, their confidence and their ability to discern this dream is misplaced, and they're gonna find that out in just a moment. Notice something interesting in verse four. They begin to talk to the king in Aramaic. Why? That's interesting that Daniel would include that, isn't it? I mean, we're going along just fine. Everything's just fine. We got the story and we're enjoying the story. And suddenly Daniel goes, yeah, and they talk to him in Aramaic. Why would they put that in there? I'm glad, you, I'm glad you're here so you would know this, okay? You ever go on Jeopardy? You're going to get this one, all right? Why would, why would God have Daniel record that they begin to speak to the king in Aramaic? Aramaic was the official language of the Chaldeans, of the Babylonian Empire. You're gonna find out later when we get to the interpretation of the dream that the dream is about the Gentile world powers. So God's gonna have a dream about the Gentile world powers revealed in their own language. God doesn't miss anything, does he? So in Aramaic, they begin to talk to the king and it's gonna be recorded that way. So the king and his wise men, we discover that the king didn't fully trust his wise men. In fact, he wasn't really sure they knew what they were doing. He wasn't really sure they could give the answer to the dream uh, and it's so important that he didn't want to take a chance that they would be messing with them. So look at what he said in verses five to nine. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, now this must have really, this must have been really the thing they didn't want to hear or caught them by surprise. Notice what he said, my decision is firm, it's established, it's resolute. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. That's probably not what they were expecting to hear, okay? I mean, that's probably not what they were, you know, they came in there with all confidence and the king says, well, this is the way it is. If you don't tell me the dream and the interpretation, I'm gonna kill all of y'all. Notice the rest of it. Verse six, however, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Now notice their response, verse seven. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. Verse nine, if you do not make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. In other words, there's only one way out of this. You either tell me the answer to the dream, for you have agreed to speak lying corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me the interpretation. Boy, do you see what the king's doing here? They come into the king, oh king, tell us the dream and we'll discern it for you. We'll all put our heads together and we'll get out our books and we'll do our Ouija board and we'll get this thing figured out for you. You just tell us a dream. And the king says, not so fast. You've interpreted other things and I'm not really sure you know what you're talking about. So here's how we're gonna do this. You have to tell me the dream and the interpretation. And if you can tell me the dream, then I'll know the interpretation is right. Well, they weren't expecting that. So they say back to the king, look, tell us a dream and let us get together and discern this thing. And, and the king then accuses them of stalling for time. 
He said, notice what he said to them there. He said, you speak lying and corrupt words. Here's what he was saying. You're trying to, you're trying to distract me from the fact that I'm gonna have your head cut off. You're trying to distract me from the fact that I'm gonna have you all executed and you're trying to buy time for yourself. And basically what he says to them is I don't wanna hear any nonsense. You either tell me the dream and the interpretation or I'm gonna kill all of y'all. Boy, that's some king, isn't it? And we all know people work better under pressure, right? So that's pressure. In other words, get busy or, uh, or the executioner is coming. Now I made a couple of observations about this. When you, when you read about Nebuchadnezzar, and you can even do this in secular history if you want to read about this guy, he, uh, he was a bit capricious. In other words, he was unpredictable. To be a capricious leader means to be uh, okay one minute and then explode the next. Un, you know, kind of like uh, you don't really know when you come in to talk to him where he's going to be. And it, it makes people afraid if a person's like that. If you ever had a boss like that, that you, you come in one day and they talk to you like a, you know, like a normal human being, and the next day they fly off the handle about everything, and you never know where they are. You never know where they're going to land. You never know what the response is going to be. That's how Nebuchadnezzar was. Now, he was that way because he was a monarch. And if you know anything about governments that are monarchies, he was an absolute monarch, just not, not just a monarch that had to answer to, to groups. No, his word, his decision was life and death. He was an absolute monarch. He could, uh, to the point of a dictator, he could do whatever he wanted to. And if he said somebody died, they died. If he said they lived, they lived. There was no appeal process there. And so when these wise men come in and he, he loses his cool, and in anger he says, if you don't give me the answer, I'm gonna have all of you executed and your houses are gonna be destroyed. He meant it. And he had the power to do that. I was thinking as I was reading over this week, and Daniel's one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I've, I've taught through this book many times. I was thinking to myself, I am so thankful God's not like that. I'm so thankful that God is not, uh, is like all over the place. One day he's, he's a happy God, and the next day he's an angry God, raining down fire, you know, lightning bolts and fire on us. I'm thankful that God is not capricious where you don't know where he stands. Aren't you thankful that you always know where God stands. He's holy and he's righteous and he loves us. And the love of God never changes, no matter what happens. And you know what's even more amazing? No matter what I do, he won't stop loving me. Man, I like that, because I do a lot of stuff that would cause him to stop loving me, right? He loves us. God is fixed in his character and in his purpose. So much unlike Nebuchadnezzar here. These guys came before him. They said, we can help you. He's angry before they start talking. Why do you think he's already irritated? Because of the dream. Because he knows there's something there and he wants to know what it is. And he's afraid that it's about him. And it is. And so he's angry with them before they get there. I want to know what happened. Now notice these confident wise men are forced to make a, a confession. After the king threatens to kill them, they're forced to confess that they can't do what he's asking them to do. Their confidence turns to uncertainty and their confidence really turns to fear. Look at verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Well, that's not exactly true. There is one guy who belongs to God who gave the dream, Daniel, and you're gonna find out later he can give the interpretation. But they say to the king, there's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such a thing of magicians, astrologers, or Chaldeans. 
And then they admit it's a difficult thing that the king requests and there's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. In those two verses, those guys are close to right about two things, but still wrong. First of all, they said there's nobody who can tell this dream. Well, there is one and his name's Daniel and God's gonna reveal the dream to him. Why? Because in verse 17 of chapter one, we just saw that God said he gave Daniel all skill and dreams and visions. So Daniel will be able to give the dream and the interpretation later, and we'll get to that next week. And the second thing they said that's almost right is they said, nobody can do this except the gods, plural. Well, again, close, but no cigar, not gods, but God singular with a capital G. There is one God who can do what they're saying because he's the one who gave the dream in the first place. Isn't that just like the world? So close to what's right and yet so far off. And listen to me, Satan does that on purpose. You see, Satan won't come at us with such a crazy outlandish lie that we look at it and we go, no, that's foolishness, we're not doing that. What Satan does is he gets it close. He uses a little bit of truth and he mixes error in with it so that people are confused. Yeah, we can't determine this thing. This thing's beyond human capacity. So the gods, plural, must have this under their control. No, that's error. There's only one God. There's only one true and living God, Jehovah God of the Bible, the one who saved us, Jesus Christ. There's only one God. And so they're close to right, but they're wrong. And they said, there's nobody who can interpret the dream. Well, not normally, but the God who gave the dream can also empower the understanding of the dream. People make the same foolish mistakes today. Oh, this is beyond human understanding. Sure it is, but we know the one who has all wisdom. So why should we fear and why should we be afraid? And how can we understand these deep things? Well, read the Bible and pray and talk to God. You see, wisdom is available. They're just looking in the wrong places. Isn't it like the world? Nebuchadnezzar wants to know a spiritual thing and he calls in a bunch of men who don't know what they're doing. Now, another thing I would think about in this passage, isn't it, isn't it difficult even today for people who are supposed to be smart and know things to say they don't know? Isn't that hard? I mean, people who are supposed to know things, it's so difficult for them to say, well, I just don't know. I was reading a story this week about a young doctor who graduated from medical school and he went to a small town and he opened his first practice. And man, he was ready, shingle up, name, you know, degree on the wall, and his first patient came in. And he examined this patient and he had a little panic in his heart. He didn't know what was wrong with this guy. So, he, so he, he stalled for a little time. He told a guy to wait in the room. He goes and he's thinking over his, his medical training and he's thinking, I've never seen this before. I don't know what it is. And rather than have to admit to his very first patient, I don't know what's wrong with you. He went into the man, he said, have you ever had this before? The man said, yeah. And he goes, well, you got it again. See you next week. It's so hard. It's so hard for us if we're supposed to know to say, I don't know. They taught us in the military, uh, if, if someone of higher rank came to you and asked you a question and you didn't know the answer, to not make something up, to not lie. Because usually the person asking you the question already knew the answer. But what they wanted you to say was, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll go find out and then I'll come find you and I'll tell you the answer. You see, these wise men, maybe a little humility, would have uh, kept their neck off the chopping block instead of coming in with such overconfidence. 
And then I begin to think about the world today, again, our secular humanistic society uh, that's becoming worse and worse every day. Man thinks he knows so much, doesn't he? And God has blessed us through science to discover many things, and I'm thankful for that. Man, I'm thankful for a simple thing like penicillin or amoxicillin or you know, antibiotics that help, help cure simple things. That, those are gifts of God that people discovered. I'm thankful for medicines and for cures of things. But we get a little big in the britches, don't we? A little bit full of ourselves, thinking we, thinking we know so much. There are three fundamental things that the world cannot answer, not any human effort anyway. And they're the three most important things in life. You ready for them? You didn't know you were going to get such stuff today, did you? Three things the world can't answer. Number one, where'd you come from? The world can't answer that. Why are you here? world can't answer that either. And most importantly, where are you going when you die? The world has no answer to that. The world has no answer to those things. See, the world will tell you today, the world will tell you, well, you got here by accident. You know, this evolutionary process, you just happen to be here. You just happen to be what you are. It just all poof, just happened. Well, if that's true, then the answer to the second question from the world has to be, we don't know why you're here. If it was an accident, you just hear without really any purpose. And then the last question, I can't answer that either. If you got here by accident and we don't know why you're here, your purpose is just to exist, then there's really no meaning once you leave here. You just die. Had a neighbor one time who, who denied God. He was an atheist. And he said to my dad and I one time, we were standing in the yard, and he said, you know, when we die, we're just like that dog. We're just going to be gone. And one of the few times my dad didn't say much, one of the few times my dad looked at a guy and said, I'm not like that dog. You might be like that dog, but I'm not like that dog because there's a God in heaven and if you're not saved, you're going to go to hell. I'm like, whoa. I was a kid and my dad was laying it on him. Listen, the world, the world cannot tell you why you're here. The world can't tell you how you got here. Now they'll try philosophy and science and evolution and all that nonsense, but what is that? That is Satan's lie to keep you away from the truth. And that's Satan's lie to keep the world away from the truth. Let me tell you what, what Jesus Christ tells us about answering those questions. We came here because God created us. God made the first man and woman in his image. God created us in his image and put us on this planet that he created in his universe. Now that's the best answer there is because it's the right answer. And any other answer to that question of where we came from is, is, is incredible foolishness. And if God created us, the Bible reveals to us that our purpose is to glorify Him, to have fellowship with Him, to walk with Him, to enjoy His fellowship, and He ours. Isn't it amazing that God would create a creature that He wants to have fellowship with? That He would create a creature that He finds pleasure in fellowshipping with. And so much so that God loves you and wants to fellowship with you that He saved you, made you part of His family, and He's going to move you into His house forever. That's your purpose. Any other purpose other than that's foolishness. Any other, I don't want any other purpose than that. Nothing else would make me feel good. How about you? I mean, if they said to me, well, you're here just because, you know, you got here by accident and hope you live a good life. Boy, that's really motivational, isn't it? That really motivates you to, to work hard and do good and do the right things and try to contribute to humanity. Boy, that's really motivational. And that's where the world is. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar was and his wise men. And then the last question, I don't want to hear, well, when you die, I don't know what happens. 
Because the closer I get to that event, the more sure I want to be about what's going to happen. I don't want foolishness. I want answers. And the only place you find answers is in the book of God, in the word of God. So those three questions, Nebuchadnezzar and his crew could never answer and neither has anybody else outside of the word of God. So these wise men, they come and they try to answer, uh, answer this question about these dreams and about this dream. By the way, when it said Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, it's in plural. And it means that God probably over a period of time kept bugging him with these dreams. It was probably the same dream over and over and over in different ways and different parts. And it kept bugging him until it drove him to the point where he calls everybody in uh, to find the, the interpretation. And God works on us that way, by the way. God will begin to work in a lost person's life and a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit of conviction here and conviction there. And let me say to you this morning, if you're watching online or here, if God's dealing with you in your heart, you better respond. You better respond to what God's doing in your life because there may come a point when he stops messing with you and he stops convicting you and then you're in real trouble. So Nebuchadnezzar was under this conviction about something going on with these dreams. Now, I wrote down in my notes, Nebuchadnezzar has a meltdown. He has an absolute uh, hissy fit, you know, whatever you want to call it, veins sticking out on his neck. He's furious. Look at verses 12 and 13. For this reason, for what reason? Because the wise men said, we can't do what you're asking and nobody would ask, ask their wise men to do this and there's no way we can tell the dream. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious. Again, if you study his life, that was a habit. He would become, matter of fact, later with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's how they get thrown in the fiery furnace. Seven times hotter because he, he again has a meltdown. So this guy's furious and he gave the command in verse 12 to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men. Note that. I don't know who got it first. Maybe the guys in the room, I don't know. Maybe they were hauled out first, but it says they began to kill the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Ooh, this is where the story gets interesting. You see, because who's part of the wise men? Well, Daniel and his buddies had just graduated from school. Those guys who just passed the test, remember the final exam, go in and talk to the king. The king said, I haven't found anybody wiser than these four guys. Matter of fact, they're 10 times wiser than anybody else in the school. They're smart. I like them. Put them in service. But why weren't they in the room, you say? Why wasn't Daniel in there and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their Babylonian names? Why weren't they included? Because they were new and they were young. Matter of fact, the older wise men probably forgot they even existed. But unfortunately, when the king said, kill all the wise men, they're part of the wise man community. They're part of that group. So they were going to be executed. There are some things I, I would point out to you about this. This command, if you will, is almost a, seems a little bit unfair, doesn't it? A little bit, I, you know, Daniel wasn't in the room. Neither were his friends. Matter of fact, I would suggest there's a whole host of wise men who don't even know this is coming. They weren't in there. Nobody asked them. They didn't have an opportunity to, to, to figure out the dream or to be involved in the situation. No, they were excluded, but they're going to die nonetheless. And then I thought, you know what? This wasn't an accident. In fact, this whole thing was by God's design that Daniel wasn't in there. Think about this. If Daniel had been in there, maybe standing in the back of the room, 
All you new guys in the back, okay, standing back. And the king's doing his thing and talking to the wise men. And God gives, let's just say God gave Daniel the, the understanding right there, and Daniel's in the back, and he goes, I, I can tell you the dream. Can I come up front? Then those men would have taken credit. They would have taken credit. God wouldn't have got the credit. You follow what I'm saying? In other words, Daniel would have just been one in a bunch. And the king would have thought, well, my wise men did what they were supposed to do. Nobody would have paid any attention to it being Jehovah God. So what I'm saying to you is there's no, there are no accidents in a, in a Christian's life. There are no accidents in a life of a person who belongs to God. It was, it was a design of God that Daniel's not in the room. Why? Because it's setting the stage for God to do something really good. Remember Joseph in Egypt? Kind of same thing, right? There in the court, Pharaoh's had a dream. He's doing the same thing, calls in all of his soothsayers and wise men, and they don't know the dream. And then, and, and then one of the servants that was delivered from jail said, hey, I know a guy in jail. He's pretty good with dreams. You might want to call him up. And so Joseph gets snatched out of the jail, cleaned up, changed his clothes, and goes before Pharaoh. Same thing here, just different scenario. Daniel's not in the room, but God's creating a situation, watch, where God's going to get all the glory. Why? Because Daniel's going to give it to him. Dan's going to say, I don't know these dreams because of anything in me, but God knows the dream. And then thirdly, I was thinking about the unfairness of it. You know, the world is unfair in general. Sometimes my kids will say to me, Dad, that's not fair. You know what my answer is? Get used to it. Get used to it. You know why the world's not fair? Because it's full of lost people. And lost people are selfish and self-centered. I mean, we are, and we're saved, right? I mean, we're still working on it. It's, it's human nature to take care of me. It's human nature to like me more than other people, right? I'm not saying that's right. And that's certainly not as Christians what we ought to do. The Holy Spirit doesn't have us do that. But it is human nature. And so you might say, well, you know, why would God put Daniel and his friends in such a, an unfair situation? Because God had a purpose. And God's going to use the unfairness of the world to bring glory to his name. Let me encourage you with something. When life kind of closes in on us and we go, man, this, is, this just doesn't seem to be fair, doesn't seem to be right, you can still trust God. You can still look at God and say, you know what, God? This world's messed up six ways to Sunday and I don't understand why these things are happening, but I know you're still in control and I know you're sovereign. And Daniel, Daniel was that way. Now notice what happened in verses 14 and 18. Then the counsel and wisdom of Daniel answered Arioch. You say, what's that? Well, Arioch's one of the chief of the, uh, the cards, one of the executioners, and he comes and finds Daniel and his friends, and he's going to take them out and execute them. And notice Daniel's response with counsel and wisdom. I'm not sure those two words would have been descriptive of me at that very moment, but it was a Daniel. Counsel and wisdom. Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he answered in verse 15 and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then an amazing thing, Arioch actually entered into a conversation with him, which is a mercy of God, because who is Daniel? He's just a captive Hebrew who went through school, who's a wise man who's about to get executed. Why would he take time to talk to him? Counsel and wisdom. 
Notice, then Arioch made the discussion known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, to do what? Verse 18, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. What an incredible passage. Let me give you several things to think about here as we finish in just a moment. Number one, did you notice Daniel's calmness? Just calm. It's been said that courage is learned in battle, in the heat of battle. But it's also said that a calm heart and learning to be calm is learned when things are calm so that when the heat comes, it's already who you are. You know why Daniel was calm? Because he trusted God every day. You see, he trusted God and walked with God every day. And when the emergency came, when the crisis came, it wasn't a new feeling. It wasn't a new thing. Can I say to us today as Christians, if we daily seek with all our heart to walk with God, to walk in holiness, which is very difficult, to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in our thinking and our speaking and our understanding, and that's the daily habit of our lives, that calm relationship with God. When the crisis comes, and they surely will, we won't be so shaken that we can't function. Daniel answered with calmness and with wisdom. And then I would point out Daniel's courage. Courage is not an absence of fear. You've heard definitions of courage. Courage is really a settled disposition to do what needs to be done in spite of the danger. And that's what courage is. A settled disposition to do what is right and what needs to be done in spite of the danger or the fear associated with the danger. Daniel, with calmness, facing certain death, had courage to say to the captain of the guard, can I go to the king and ask for time? Can I go to the king and seek a reprieve so that I can get the answer that he's looking for? Now you think, well, that's not really something that takes courage. Oh, but in this case, it took great courage. The king already blew a gasket. Okay, his face already red. He's angry. He's so angry that he has just given the command to kill all the wise men in Babylon. And King and Daniel wants to go in there and talk to him. Probably not the best time, what do you think? Probably, you know, if you had time, if Daniel had time, probably would be give him a day to cool off, give him a few hours to think about what he said, and then go in and talk to him. Daniel said, no, no, no. Before anybody else dies, including me and my friends, we need to go talk to the king. Then notice the difference, thirdly, between Daniel's confidence and the confidence of the wise men who went in there the first time. There's a difference. The men who went before the king the first time were full of themselves. They were confident of their skills and of their training and of their education. Where's Daniel's confidence? His confidence is like King David. My confidence is in the Lord. My confidence is in the king. So Daniel goes in with confidence, but not arrogance. Confidence not in self, but in God. Can I, can I encourage you today with this? There's a lot of things in life that 
I wouldn't be absolute about. You know, things that might happen tomorrow, decisions that we make, even the best laid plans can change, right? I mean, you plan out what you're going to do, but then you don't know what's going to happen. But I'll tell you this, and I hope it's true for you in your life. Whatever God said in that book, I'm 100% confident of. How about you? Whatever God said in that book about Jesus Christ and about man and about God and about salvation and about sin and everything that God said in that book, I am absolutely confident of that. And I would stand up with anybody and say so. That's where Daniel is to see Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's going to go in and say, look, if you'll give me some time, I'll talk to the God who gave you the dream. And if he's willing, he'll give me the answer and I'll tell it to you. So Daniel goes in with confidence. And then I like this. When he gets the reprieve, the king gives it to him, which by the way, I don't have time to get into. What a miraculous work of God that Daniel would go in and ask for a reprieve and the king would give it to him. Who would have figured that, right? So God gives him the reprieve, or the king gives him the reprieve through God. And then he goes to his friends. And it's been said you can do two things when crisis hits. You can panic or you can pray. Daniel chooses to decide to pray. He goes to his friends and he says, look, guys, we need to have a prayer meeting. Uh, the king gave us a reprieve, but we need to pray that God will, will give us this answer so that uh, we don't get our heads chopped off and die with the rest of the, of the wise men. Two things that he says here about his prayer in verse 18. He said, we're gonna, we're gonna ask mercies of the God of heaven. You see that in verse 18? Why would he refer, this is just some extra stuff here for free. Why would he refer in this passage to, to Jehovah as God of heaven? Because typically when the Hebrews talk about God, they talk about him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the covenant. They talk about him with relation to them. But now here's three Hebrew boys, Daniel being the leader, who say, let's, let's ask the God of heaven for mercies. I find that interesting, but I'm going to tell you why he's, using, why he's saying it that way. And he says it that way all throughout the book of Daniel. God is referred to as the God of heaven, not God of, of Abraham, not any of those Hebrewisms that we would normally see. Because Daniel understood, and he's going to say it later in a confession about their sin, he understood why they were there. He understood that the nation was in captivity because of their sin. And he understood that in this moment, God wasn't just the God of Israel, that God was at work in the Gentile world, that God was at work in the whole world by putting Israel there. And when he gets the answer to this dream, he's going to really know that's true. And so what Daniel was saying is God is not just the God of the Hebrews. Get this, he's the God of heaven. He's the God of the whole world. And that's good news for us Gentiles, isn't it? Because God's no respecter of persons. Yes, he's the God of Israel. And let me tell you something, he's still the God of Israel today. But he's also the God of grace and mercy to the whole world through Jesus Christ. And so Daniel intimates that here by calling him the God of heaven. And then he said he asked for mercies. Mercies. I'm glad that David said God's mercies are new every day, aren't they? They're new every day. And so Daniel simply goes to God and he asks for mercy. Now you're gonna have to wait till next week for the interpretation. But let me tell you this, tell your friends, tell your family, if you ever want to understand Daniel and a precursor to all that the book of Revelation says, you want to come next week because Daniel's going to get the interpretation of the dream from God. And, it, and listen, that interpretation is about the whole world, not just his world, but the Gentile world till Jesus comes back. That's how important these revelations are. 
Let me close with three things. Why did God give Nebuchadnezzar this dream? Because ultimately he's going to show him who's really in charge. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was in charge. He thought all his plans were his plans, but God was going to show Nebuchadnezzar, mm, you're not really in charge. I'm in charge. I just let you be in charge. And Nebuchadnezzar is eventually going to get saved, I believe. Secondly, this prophecy is way beyond just Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, it's a message to Nebuchadnezzar, but God's prophecy in the Old Testament always had a local application and a far-reaching application. And so you're going to see that here as well. And then finally, the reason God did this, we find out in this passage, is God is going to use this event to elevate Daniel to a place of real influence. And so God's going to put his man in a pagan government to move and shake things. Listen, sometimes God puts you and me in a place that we might not like. If Daniel had his brothers, he'd want to go home. If Daniel had his brothers, he'd want to go back to Jerusalem and live with his family and be there near the temple. But God had an important job for him to be prime minister in a pagan nation, which will eventually, I believe, lead to Nebuchadnezzar getting saved. Daniel, listen, I don't have time. If you study the life of Daniel, this man, this man God used him to be some kind of tremendous influencer in the lives of people all around him. He influenced an entire nation. As, listen, as a humble man working in the background, he wasn't a guy on point. He served under many kings, but he influenced every one of them toward a God of heaven. Let me close with this. The God who moves nations, who put Daniel there, is the same God that loves you today. Same God who has his church in the world preaching the gospel today. I don't know where you are in your relationship with God. The Bible says that we've all sinned and come short of his glory, short of his righteousness. Jesus died on the cross, paid for our sins so that you and I can be saved. If you're here today or you're watching online and you've never prayed to receive Jesus Christ, would you do that right now? Would you confess your sin to him and ask him to save you today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Daniel and for the testimony of this man's life and of his friends and those who, uh, who worked around him and with him. God, I pray today if there's someone watching online or, or maybe here in this place and they're not sure what will happen when they leave here, God, you tell us all that we need to know. Lord, if we die in our sin without Jesus Christ, there's a place of punishment in hell, Lord. And I pray that today men and women would understand that's not where they want to go. But God, by faith in your son, Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven of our sin and you will grant to us eternal life, your eternal life. And God, we can spend eternity with you in heaven. Right now, I pray for that lost man or woman, that young person, that boy or girl, that God, from their seat right now, from their place at home or wherever they're listening to this message, that God, they might pray and say, God, I'm a sinner and I know it. God, forgive me and save me right now. Lord, make me your own. You'll save anybody who asks. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and sing, if I can pray with you, if you prayed to receive Christ, would you come tell me this morning? My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I to be alive in you.
questions about what you've uh, heard this morning, even those online, you email us, call us, we'll be glad to talk with you or set up an appointment or you let us know today and we'll be glad to talk with you. Anything else? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, how refreshing it is and how, how, how good it is to learn and understand. Bless us now as we go through our day. In Jesus' name, amen.